turn with me to Acts 2, 37 through 42. It's on the screen as well for us. God's Word, speaking through Luke to us today, writes, When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that we can gather together in the name of Jesus to worship you. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to man. Father, we pray now that as we turn and look in your word, I pray that we might peer in to see the glorious gospel that is on display in this text. Father, I pray that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, and our heart might be soft to your word, that we might not only comprehend it, but that we might embrace it. And Lord, in embracing your word, we might grow to love you and to know you more. We thank you for these things, and we pray in the powerful and precious name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Have you ever felt the tension in the Christian life when somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Have you ever felt a tension in the answer that you might give? Some people might answer, it means to pray. It means to read your Bible. It means to meditate on God's Word. Many spiritual disciplines that are very personal. Things that you might do in your home. Uh, Some others might answer it means to be a Christian to go to church. To serve others. To fellowship with other believers. uh, To do activities. To gather for fellowship. Sometimes we have to even ask, what's the most important thing? What's our schedule going to be for what it means for us to be a Christian? What is our schedule going to look like? What are we going to include in our day, today, in our Christian life? Is it going to be personal spiritual disciplines, or will it be corporate activities, communal disciplines? Uh, Our text this morning, Acts 2, 37-42, answers such potential tension. It answers it by teaching that belief in the gospel demands church participation. Belief in the gospel demands church participation. Another way of saying that is the call of the gospel is the call to the church. Or, another way, when we turn from sin, we necessarily turn to Jesus' body in the church. This is what we're going to look at in this text and see how this plays out. 
But as I was reading this very first verse that we look at in verse 37, when it says, After they had heard these things, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? I was moved by a memory of a man calling me in the middle of the night in tears. He was weeping. And I don't know about you, but it's an odd thing to pick up the phone to somebody who is weeping. You may have had this experience in your life, and you may not know what is going to come next out of their mouth. The words that came out of this man's mouth next is, I just prayed with my four-year-old daughter before bedtime, and she prayed these words. Jesus, take the evil out of my daddy's heart. And in tears, he asked me, what must I do? He was pierced in the heart, and he wanted to know how he should respond. It's the same thing that's going on with these men and these women. And the response here, after hearing this proclamation by Peter about the gospel, in, as, uh, as was read earlier to you, 2, 14 through 36, the, the men were pierced in the heart and they asked, what must we do? Peter's evangelical preaching of the gospel that culminated in the statement right there in verse 36, that God has made this Jesus whom they had crucified, both Lord and Messiah, this pointed proclamation pierced their hearts. And they cried out, how shall we respond? The overwhelming answer is found in verse 40 of our text. Verse 40 says, be saved from this corrupt generation. The rest of our text fleshes out what does that mean? How can one be saved from this corrupt generation? And we're going to look at this text today by looking at the two commands of the text, the two promises of the text, and the two results of the text. So look with me first here at the two commands of the text. So observe that belief in the gospel demands church participation by these two commands. In verse 38, the commands say, Repent and be baptized. We're first going to look at the commands together, and then we're going to look at the commands separately. So together, when you're looking at these, I first just want to ask you, what is odd here? If someone were to ask you, what do I need to do to be saved? What do you think or expect should be the response? You should believe, right? And that's not what he says here. He says to repent and be baptized. Now, why does he say that? I'm going to suggest to you that repentance and baptism here in this text are action-oriented responses that reflect belief. They're action-oriented responses that reflect and show belief. So Peter's response to them is to believe in the gospel. And how do you believe in the gospel? You believe by repenting and being baptized. It is interesting that baptism is included here, right? I don't know about you, but oftentimes... It's not a part of gospel presentations. What should I do to be saved? Peter says a part of it is you need to be 
baptized. And I want to try to answer why that is and how that is here in this text and flesh that out. But first, I want you to see the the call of repentance that is here. I'm going to say this is the introspective call of the gospel. The introspective call of the, the gospel. Repentance is the personal expression of belief. It's relationship language, isn't it? The call of the gospel is not simply that you have a Savior in Jesus Christ who cancels your debt. He cancels the effect of your sins. It's that your sin has actually been a rebellion against God who created you and He desires to have a relationship with you. Jesus cancels your sin so that you can have a relationship with God. That's why in believing in Jesus, repentance of your sin is required. It's not simply that you believe something happened so that you no longer, you get a get out of jail free card and you no longer have to go to hell. It's the gospel call is a call to a relationship with God. And so we must first and foremost repent of our sin and turn from our sin in order to have a relationship with him. However, we oftentimes stop here when we call others to the gospel. I think we have another aspect in this text, and it's what I'm going to call the extrospective call of the gospel. The extrospective. So we had an introspective call and the extrospective call. And this is this. Baptism is the communal expression of belief. It's the communal expression of belief. So it's kind of like two sides of one coin, right? The coin is belief. One side of the coin, repent. The personal introspective recite. The other side of the coin is the communal expression of belief by being baptized. It's the testifying to your belief toward a community of people. And here in this text, we see this. The gospel holds out that when one unites to Christ They, by faith and repentance in his death and resurrection, one also is united to Christ's body. It is impossible to be a believer who is united to Christ who is not united to Christ's church. Did you hear that? It is impossible to be a believer in Jesus and be a one who is united to Christ and to not be united to his body, the church. And hence, the call of the gospel must include a call to be a member of the church, which is evidenced by baptism. Notice here the text then continues in verse 38. It says that baptism is for each of us in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not that baptism is salvific. Baptism doesn't save you. Belief in Jesus saves you. Baptism is a testimony to that. It's the expression of the salvation reality that is in visible public form of a death, of your death as you go underneath the water, and of a resurrection back to life, being united to Jesus' death and being raised to life. In baptism, there is a past reality, a present reality, and a future reality that is being testified to. What is the past reality that is being testified 
in baptism. The past reality is that Jesus Christ died and was raised. The present reality is that you, by your faith in Jesus, are attached to that death and resurrection. When Jesus died, all those who have been baptized are testifying, we died with Jesus. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, all those who have been baptized are testifying, we have been raised with Jesus. And not only is there a present reality and a present testifying, there is a future reality to baptism, right? We will be raised with Jesus on the last day. When Jesus returns, the resurrection of Jesus is our great hope for the resurrection of our bodies. So this is the testimony of baptism. And this is the testimony that the church, the community, receives You know, we've kind of missed this testimony somewhat in our culture here in America. We rejoice this July 4th weekend in the freedoms that we have to meet. But we have brothers and sisters across the world who do not share the same freedoms that we have. And in there are many closed countries across the world, closed to the gospel, in which if someone were to gather or to, or to come and say, I would like to come to your church meeting. I want to sit in on the back and listen to what you're saying in your church. The church has to be very careful about who they allow in the church and who they allow to come in because it is very easy for someone to actually be a snake or to be a spy for the government and to want to come and to, uh, and to turn over the church. And so you know what the, the, the door is for the entrance into the church? Baptism, the public declaration that one believes in Jesus and is identifying with Jesus' people. It's too dangerous for the church to not have baptized members a part of their attendance. What they do out of wisdom and out of a healthy fear actually hits at a truth reality. Baptism is an essential part of the response to the gospel because the call of the gospel is the call to the church. Two applications for you from this thought. First is, don't divide between personal following of the Lord and communal following of the Lord. There is no such thing as saying, it's just me and Jesus and that's all I need. If it's you and Jesus, that also means it's you and Jesus' people, His church. And the second thought is for us, when we're sharing the gospel with others, do we include baptism in our presentation? Do we include the call to the church and the call to Jesus' body as we hold out when, when we say, this is what you must do to be saved? Do we say to the people, you need to, be re- you need to repent and you need to be baptized? Second, I want you to observe that the gospel demands participation in the church by the two promises in our text. So look with me now in verses 38 and 39. Continuing on, it says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our our God will call. The first promise in this text is that 
coinciding with the receiving of the forgiveness of sins, you will receive the Holy Spirit. I take this to mean that all who believe in Jesus will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that such belief is evidenced by repentance and baptism. Jesus said in John 16, 6-7, It is to your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You know, sometimes I've actually uh, met Christians who have said this phrase, and I wonder maybe if you might have said this phrase. If only Jesus were here right now, I would understand this. Have you ever heard somebody say that? If only Jesus were to walk in this door, I would believe in him. Well, I've got news for you. Jesus himself said it's better for him not to be here so that the Holy Spirit can be here for you. Consider how many people were around Jesus himself and did not comprehend what he was saying. Who's to say any one of us wouldn't be better than one of the Pharisees? Who's to say any one of us wouldn't be better than one of the disciples? The disciples all the time did not understand what Jesus was saying. They scratched their head and they were confused at him. They didn't believe. They doubted. Peter doubted even after seeing all of the miracles that Jesus did. But Jesus says, I have something better for you in store. Jesus says, not only will the, the experience that you have of me will not just be an experience of one that is external to you. The experience will be one that is internal to you. And so the Spirit of Christ is sent to every believer to indwell within them. To be with them. The Bible also teaches in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit seals believers for the day of redemption and constitutes believers as members of His church. The church is made up of all those who have received the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the power to kill sin and to participate in the church. This is the promise to you today. If you repent of your sin and are baptized, if you evidence your belief in Jesus, you will receive forgiveness and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The second promise of our text is right there in verse 39. It's the promise about the promise. So the first promise is the promise that you'll receive the Holy Spirit. The second is the promise about that promise. Do you see it in verse 39? Look at it, me. It says, For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all those who are far off, for all who the Lord God will call. So this promise tells us who should receive the Holy Spirit. It is not only the hearers of this text, it's for the hearers of this text, And it's for their children. It's for their children's children. And it's for those who are very, very far off. Well, guess what, my friends? We are those who are very far off from the original hearers of this text. In time and in place, in location. And so this promise is coming to you today. This is the promise for you. That if you repent, and that if you are baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Notice here in this promise, the church is made up of all those who have faith 
and who believe in Jesus. Some will look at this and consider the call to your children here and say that this means that everyone, every believer's child is a part of the church. But that wouldn't be the promise about the promise, right? The promise is for those who believe. So if this is holding out and saying, if your children believe, they will receive the Holy Spirit. That's what constitutes the church. So we, are, we love to have our children in our church with us, but we constantly hold out and call to them that unless they personally accept Jesus and trust in Him and repent of their sin and are baptized, they are not Christians. Next, look here at the end of that little phrase, as many as the Lord will call. Have you ever thought about that phrase before? This gives such a great confidence to us. There's a great confidence that the Lord has a special call to his children. It's, a, it's an effective call. Notice, in this text, there is external public preaching that calls everyone to believe in Jesus. And there's a special internal call that God places in the hearts of men, calling them. And everyone in whom Jesus has called in the hearts of men, they are the ones who respond and believe. The ones who believe are the only the ones who the Lord calls here. Now this is a difficult concept. We have read it before in our, in our scriptures. Romans 8 Verse 30 says, all those whom he called, he justified. And I'm saying that this text and that text are working together beautifully to reflect this. This actually grounds our hope in evangelism, in preaching, in everything we do. I am too often guilty of wrestling in my own mind when I go to share the gospel with somebody. I wrestle in my mind with this thought. How in the world is this person going to believe? Have you ever wrestled with that thought? Have you ever wrestled it with, with a family member who's been rejecting the gospel for a very, very long time? And you're just like, I'm going to share this again with him, but I don't see it. I don't know how this person is going to believe. I don't, I don't see it. Or maybe you just meet an individual and he just gives off this aura or demeanor to you that you, you struggle with considering how is it possible that this person can be sitting next to me singing hymns next week in church? Well, here's the hope. Here's the hope. As many as the Lord calls, they're the ones that are going to believe. The Lord is going to do a work inside people's hearts that is an effective drawing of men. And bringing them to a point of repentance and baptism. Two applications from this. Trust in the promise that all who believe will receive the Holy Spirit. This devastates legalistic boundaries that we've set up in the church. Every single person who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit inside of them. 
They are brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that mean for how we are to receive them? We are to receive them as brothers and sisters in Christ, recognizing the Spirit of Christ dwelling within them. There is no room for legalistic boundaries that that sets up walls between us that might say to somebody else who has the Spirit of Christ dwelling within them, you are not welcome here. This devastates that boundary. And the second application here is to share the gospel with others. Share it with others widely with the belief that God effectually calls and saves and gathers people into his church through the gospel message. You are freed up. You are not the person who saves people. You are the person who shares the message that God saves people. And then guess what? You let God save them. You let God do the work within their heart to draw them and to open up the eyes of their heart to the beauties of the gospel to lead them to personal trust. Finally here, the third thing that we want to see is I want you to observe with me that belief in the gospel demands participation in the church by the two results in verses 41 and 42. Look with me again. Verse 41, it says, So those who accepted this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The first result is that people were baptized. Do you see it right there? People listened, heard the message, and they believed in Jesus. They repented of their sin, and they were baptized. Marvel with me at that number for a second. 3,000. Prior to that day, Acts one fifteen says there were about 120 of them. I did a little uh, counting this morning. We're a little bit short of 120, but this room could seat about 120, maybe a little bit more with our 16 pews. So ponder with me. The church was just this size, and it grew times 30 in one day. The God who saved 3,000 people in one day in this text is the very same God today that we believe in and trust in. So when we pray for the salvation of others, I hope that you pray in a way that believes that it's the same God that is doing the same work. Now, yes, this is descriptive of a very special time in the history of the church, but God can save in mighty ways today. And we ought to continue to pray for revival. We pray that this church be filled ten times over. And I believe God can do that. He did it right here in this text. Next, here, see that the people not only were baptized, they participated in the church. Do you see that in the text? Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. They didn't have this idea that Christianity is just a personal religion or just some individual activity that you, that you do. They immediately grasped the concept 
that believing in Jesus unites yourself to Jesus' body. And so the communal identity that they had was formed when they first trusted in Jesus. And so here, we have a communal identity. And the call of the gospel demands us to participate in the church together. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I consider with you how you are doing here at Burton Memorial to the devotion to the apostles' teaching. We rejoice in the opportunities for Sunday school and Bible study and for the opportunities for the word to be preached on Sunday morning. And I ask you, are you devoted to these things? Are you devoted to the word and studying the word together with other believers in Jesus? Next, says they were devoting themselves to fellowship. It's an interesting thought to devote oneself to fellowship. I think for most of us, fellowship is kind of happenstance. Fellowship is just kind of what we do, right? There's not necessarily an intentionality behind fellowship. The intentionality was go to Sunday school, come sing praises, and listen to a sermon. And fellowship was what happens in between. Or maybe right after I finish, and you're like, can't wait for you to finish. We're going to have some fellowship time and, and talk. Notice here, it's a priority to them. They devote themselves to it. And I was just thinking of a few ways. Are you devoted to fellowship in a way that you're eating meals together with others? Maybe it's been a long time since you've had a meal with another family here in the church. Maybe consider this next week to spend some time devoting yourself to fellowship with others. Maybe you have a task to do here at church. Um, maybe, maybe you've got a maintenance job to do, or maybe you're going to do a ministry project. I invite, or I, I encourage you to invite somebody else along with you to do that task. Invite somebody else and be intentional about fellowship with other believers. Next, the text says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Uh, in this context, I understand this to refer to the Lord's Supper. Uh, it is possible to just refer to eating meals together. Uh, scripture has both. Um, but I think here it is speaking specifically about the sharing of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10.16 is a similar uh, context for this, for this phrase. Um, it says, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Uh, so there is an intentionality to continually meeting together to share in the Lord's Supper with one another. And finally, this text says they devoted themselves to prayers. Are you meeting with other believers regularly for prayer? Are you gathering on Wednesday nights here? Are you gathering together on Sunday nights? Are you gathering in your homes with others? Or is prayer simply a personal spiritual discipline to you? I encourage you to be devoted communally to praying with other believers. Two applications for us here, and I'll close. In our evangelism, do we include the call to the church as a central aspect to an individual's response to the gospel? We should. We should. The church is God's body. It's Jesus' body, which is for every single member. A hand cannot say to a foot, I don't need you. 
A person cannot believe in Jesus and say to the rest of the body, I don't need you. So when we call people to trust in Jesus, we should call him to the beautiful thing that is the church. Second here is in our Christian lives, are we immersed in the participation of our church? Are you immersed here at Burton Memorial? This message is a call for you to dedicate yourself all the more, not just to attending here on Sunday morning, but to the people that make up this church because the call of the gospel necessarily demands us to participate in the church. Let's close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. It rings true in our ears, rings true in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we might have hearts that have soft soil, soil that has been tilled by you. I pray that you would root out any of the rocky stones that are in our hearts. I pray that you would remove them so that we might receive your gospel as children receive your word, that we might receive it humbly and in full trust. Lord, I pray that if there is any here in this room who have not believed in Jesus, I pray today that they might repent of their sin, that they might turn away from their rebellion, and that they might come to you. And Lord, I pray that they, in their turning away of their rebellion, that they might turn to this church, Lord. And I pray that they might feel the weight of the need to be baptized, to express their trust in you publicly, and to identify with this church. And Lord, I pray for those who have believed in you, who have repented of their sin and have been baptized, but feel like they haven't really devoted themselves to this church. I pray that they might be convicted this morning and that they might, by your spirit, be led to devote themselves all the more in the upcoming days. We love you and we thank you and we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.